this life for? What is this life for? What is this life for anyway? Lost in all the questions of life's strange and secret ways. Is there meaning in these moments that fill up? Hello. Welcome to episode two of season two of Living Room Therapy. Today our fearless heroes are talking to Kaya McLaren, the author of many books, including the new novel, What's Worth Keeping. My guess is the answer isn't going to be every band t-shirt you've bought from every concert you've ever attended, huh? Go on in and let me know if I'm right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Living Room Therapy. I'm Reed. That's Paul. That's Jacqueline. And welcome to Kaya McLaren. Thank you. Special, special guest. Yes, indeed. We should uh, disclaim that this is not therapy, even though it's called Living Room Therapy. It is a living room. But it's not therapy. Don't rely on us to help you rely on your therapist. This is just entertainment. That's right. Just some good friends getting together and yeah, catching up, trying to get through this COVID uh, happily and healthily. Now, Kia, you are Jacqueline's friend. That's how we got connected, right? I'm better than that. She's my third cousin. What? Yeah. Oh, I thought we were second cousins. Okay, third cousins. I think I think I'm second cousins with your mom and you're second cousins with my mom and our mom oh, okay. first cousins. Got it. Okay. Tell us more. Tell us more about your uh, other than the the legal connections. Tell us about your uh, psychic connections. Ah. You know, I remember the day that Jacqueline became part of our family and just what a miracle it was. Like how it was revered as this this answer from God. She's just a miracle for our family. I think she gets that a lot. Paul, would you agree? <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. She's definitely special. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And and Jacqueline, how old were you when you got to know Kaya? And we would have some family gatherings. Christmas parties and stuff. Yeah. I mean, just you were a toddler and I was a little older and Right. The one time I do remember she lived in Easton and I was going through some sort of a breakup and I ended up landing at her little cabin and she, she made like this, I mean, I still, when I think of couscous, I think of you, it was couscous, it was cucumber, tomato, it was, it was a really nice salad and just quinoa, sorry, quinoa, not couscous. Um, well, I think of you for couscous too then. Oh. Um, but she had all these like affirmations, like a lot of like positivity around. It was just a really nice place to be. And like, we had some really good, I look back on that time and it was really important. I needed somewhere soft to land and. Wow. Nice. <laughs> and and when was that? Well, how many, like 10 years ago. Is that what you think? Oh, probably 15. Then she got our whole family together. It was really neat. So we have like three, uh, did have three matriarchs in our family. Was it like a birthday type of a thing? They were all turning. Mm-mm. No, tell me, I have such a bad memory. Mm-hmm. No, it was, it was Christmas and Aunt Darlene, great Aunt Darlene had had a heart attack that year. And I just felt like, man, there's no time to waste. We got to get everybody together. The older generation of women were utterly stunned that you could have a party without like stress and freaking out and. I didn't do anything except delegate, like bring a dish and show up. I didn't do anything, but, and everybody chipped in and helped clean. It was no big deal. And that was just kind of interesting to see a generational difference. But anyway, that was ended up being my grandmother's last Christmas. And so I remember was- that we got a great photo of the three of them, all of our older, awesome yeah. 
leaders of the family. Strong women, graceful women with grace and kindness too. They, they pass it down to us. Yes, they do. So Jacqueline tells me you're an author. I started on the Divinity of Second Chances. I'm only about uh, three and a half hours into the 10 hours on the audio book. Oh, that one was like my favorite audio book out of all of them. That, that book I wrote, gosh, about 20 years ago. I still really love it. it. In some ways, it seems like my most authentic book because it was the one that was edited the least. When I look back at it now, now I think, oh, I'm a better writer as far as better sentences and stuff like that. But yeah, the characters are amazing. There's some great therapy in that one where there's a couple that is uh, sort of careening toward divorce and they go to what, who they think is a therapist, but she's a dance teacher and forbids them to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Yeah. yeah. So they, they work their way up to, to learning to tango, but without talking and they, wow. they build up some tension. Body therapy. I think a lot of problems are kind of physical in nature. I mean, I was thinking, I was talking to a, another author today who had gone through breast cancer a couple of years before me. And she was talking about that, about what a, a physical experience trauma is. And we were thinking about how sometimes physical experiences help you out of it. You know, in this culture, we're so focused on words, but being in nature or the comfort of petting a horse or listening to music, those things that keep us in the moment and make us feel physically safe are healing. Mm -hmm. I was remembering like the first time I got a massage after my, my treatment and what a relief it was, what a blessed relief, how profound it was to feel all the parts of my body that had not changed. Yeah. And just, and, and touch did that touch alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just made me aware of like, Oh, that's right. I got some legs. Or the first time I went skinny dipping after that same thing where like, wow, feeling a lot of skin here. That's not my chest. That sounds like your positive psychology, Jacqueline. Yeah, I think that's why I gravitate so much to like the, the books that she's written, even though there's a lot of difficulty and things that they've had to overcome. Um, and I'm thinking like all the books that I've read of yours, the, the latest one, um, just to see what this person does with this really difficult experience and how she's finding ways to find herself again and find herself in life again. I mean, it's just a, like, again, I mean, you said the word authenticity and I think there was, it was, it was very authentic and, and just real. Thank you. And I really appreciate you using the word authentic for it, that because that's, that's what it was to me. Like in the beginning, it was a completely different book. I started writing this book before I got cancer. And I was walking with my friend, Erica Bauermeister, who's a great author. And she had bought this house in Port Townsend up on a hill, big Victorian, but it had been owned by a hoarder. And so she and her husband cleaned out disgusting, disgusting things and worked really hard on this house. And she, she'd written a book about it. And at that time, nobody was really interested in it. And I was saying, well, Erica, take the same take the same thing and turn it into a, a fiction, like make it about a husband and a wife who, you know, remodel their house and remodel their marriage and got all the metaphors there, the foundation and the boundaries and the electricity and the like, <laughs> plumbing to, to take the, the poop away and, you know, all that, right? <laughs> um, That's good. So, yeah. And she said, uh, yeah, no, you write that. 
And so I, I did. <laughs> so I thought about it for a few months and then I ended up maybe a year later uh, in New Mexico, living across the street from a house that was beautiful on the outside that hadn't been gutted on the inside. Like there had been a plumbing leak upstairs that had gone on for a few months. And so I started writing about that house and imagining a couple headed for divorce that needed to repair it so that they could liquidate their assets. But at some point I realized this isn't my story. I don't know anything about remodeling houses and I don't know anything about marriage. What am I doing? And so I, I was down in Mexico and I started writing this book that I was really enjoying with lots of characters in a quirky small town in Mexico. And when I showed what I had to my agents, they said, yeah, no, don't, don't do that. That's about, <laughs> that's about outlier characters in an outlier place. And no one's going to relate to that. No, no, this is terrible. I was kind of in a desperate position by then. So I just threw this on the table to stay in the game. And they said, now you're back on track. Um, but it helped give me a down payment for this house. And um, I was really grateful for that. Uh, but I got my edits after my third round of chemo when pretty much every single thing in life except for love and nature seemed like bullshit to me. And I just didn't want to waste any more of my precious life on a book I didn't really believe in. I mean, I really... I thought about buying my way out of the contract, but that didn't seem like integrity because I signed the contract. And I thought about just writing the book that I said I would write, but having a book out that I wasn't proud to have my name on didn't seem like integrity either. So I realized as much as I didn't want to, I had to scrap it and begin again because that's what integrity looked like. But it was tough because during cancer treatment, I also regretted spending quite as much time as I did writing books. And there were times where I didn't do things that were meaningful because I had a deadline. Like I wasn't my best friend's bridesmaid because I had a deadline. But then I found myself in this moment after treatment where I just was so traumatized. I did not expect to feel that way. I really thought when treatment was over, I was going to feel just nothing but jubilant, just yahoo. And instead, I felt extremely disoriented in my life and in my body. And somewhere along the line, my fear of dying became a fear of living. I had no clue that was a thing. When I started talking to other people who had been through it, they said, oh, yeah, that's a thing. But I don't think people talk about it because it, it seems ungrateful. I mean, in that moment in my life, I was losing two friends to cancer who were not going to have the same outcome I had had. And so, you know, I did feel like a big whiny crybaby, you know, wow, wow, I get to live, right? There wasn't really a lot of resources. And the support group I went to was, when I left that support group, I was suicidal. Um, I just saw like all the ways life could go wrong. And it scared the hell out of me. In the other people? Yeah. Yeah. I just thought, oh man, if that's all I have to look forward to, you know, fuck it. But pardon my French, I'm a teacher. Um, okay. <laughs> We're casual. Uh, yeah, let's hope the parents don't see that. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was kind of a moment where I wasn't really balanced. And, and I knew it was temporary, a temporary state of mind. But I did feel like, wow, I have never felt this bad before. And I don't know if it's going to get worse before it gets better. So I did take drugs back to the pharmacy. I gave my guns to a friend. And I just was like, I'm going to ride this out. But the, the support group, it affirmed my fear. Like I did not want cancer to be my new identity. 
And then here are all these people who have been going to the same support group for decades, every, every day, I mean, every week or whatever saying, yeah, I'm so-and-so and I'm a survivor. And I thought, no, man, no, I, I don't, I want to be part of this club. And I wondered what would the support group be like if people said, hi, I'm so-and-so and I love this and this and this and this, and you were defined by what you love. And then maybe you said, you know, this week, I'm so grateful to still be alive because I had this moment and this moment and this moment and this moment. These are the things that made me so grateful that I endured all that and that I'm still here. These were really good moments. And then what if you said, you know, this week, these things challenged me, blah, 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 blah. And then what if you finish by saying that when I'm challenged, here's how I found comfort. I went for a walk and listened to birds. I took a hot bath with candles. I you know, got a massage, whatever you did, rode my horse, rode my bike, so that it was really solution oriented. I mean, I get it that people need to decompress, although as people decompressed, other people appeared to sort of shame them. Not everybody was in the same space. Some people were in a space where they were absorbing the shock of a, a new development, you know, uh, cancer returning or whatever. And other people had been out of it for decades. And I remember this one woman standing up and pointing to her t-shirt and saying, my, my husband got me this t-shirt for Christmas. It says, this girl doesn't, doesn't run, she reloads. You gotta fight. Well, not everybody was ready to fight. It was kind of a shit show. You had some very good sense to leave that. Yeah, group. it was not for me. It was during the day because um, was, I was on leave after a surgery. And so it was, it was during the day and it was all women that were a generation older than me for the most part. I don't know if it would have been different if they were women my same age. What did help me was bookstore Bob had told me about Annie and um, gave me her number because he was sure she wouldn't mind. And I, I couldn't find the number by the time I really needed it. But I was walking down at the park in my town one day talking to my favorite goose, Uncle Aaron, who is a domestic goose that lives with the Canada geese and gives me hope that like us odd ducks will find our people. <laughs> you know, this gives me hope for world peace, whatever. So I was talking to Uncle Aaron and this woman walked by and, and uh, asked if I was a teacher. And I said, yeah. And she asked if I was an author. And I said, yeah. And she said, she asked if I was Kaya. And I said, yeah. And, and she's, you know, she's 70. She was 70 at the time. Now she's 71. And I, I can't keep up with her on skis. I can't keep up with her on a bike. I can't even keep up with her walking. Like she's, <laughs> she's really strong. And she had colon cancer and breast cancer and has a million skin cancers. And, you know, we get together and we do these athletic things and we don't really talk about cancer. You know, if one of us has a checkup or something like that, we can say, oh yeah, I've got a checkup this week. And the other one knows like, hmm, like we know what that means. And go, oh, you're thinking about it. All right. But hey, notice those herons. <laughs> Doesn't identify you. No, I don't want that to be part of my identity. I don't let people call me a breast cancer survivor. I know other people really like it. They like being called a survivor <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with that. But I don't want it to be any part of my identity. I just say it's an experience I have had because it was 196 of my whole life. It was six months out of my then 47 years or 46 years, 196 out of my whole life. I would only let that define me if I was an Olympic champion. But other than that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. 
<laughs> there were like so many other things I had done in my life that were brave and strong. And, and you define yourself as a teacher, I hear. No, I don't even define myself as a teacher. I, I am teaching. Who do you teach? I teach middle school art. And they don't define themselves as students, I presume. I think that we're in a shift right now. Like back in the day, if you were a teacher, it meant like you control people. These days, I just have no interest in controlling anybody. Like I just invite people. I mean, that's kind of the nice thing about this COVID situation is I'm not in a position to force anybody to do anything. They're at home, right? All I can do is invite. And I can't even like make it a super fun dog and pony show. You got to kind of do your part, kid. I think that this teacher student thing is, is the dance. And for a lot of years, I've been dancing with people that were totally limp. Well, I think if, if you asked 100 middle schoolers, uh, who are you? How many would say I'm a student? Any? Mm-hmm. One? Mm-hmm. Zero? Something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's been really interesting. I, I'm curious when we go back, if students will see their education as less of a burden and more of an opportunity. Mm. I really hope so, but that might be too much to hope for. I mean, I like to hear people like you say the good thing about this pandemic is. Yeah, that could be a silver lining is they actually appreciate going to school and all the things they took for granted. I have two boys and both of them, the challenges of learning, one of them is struggling more than the other one. But um, as far as doing online learning, but it's totally different. And I really feel for all the kids uh, uh, who've missed prom or graduation. Yeah. My niece, my, my niece uh, graduated from high school last year, and, and this year has been in Cal Poly in like solitary confinement. Can you imagine being so far away from home your first year and being in solitary confinement, which was bad enough, but now like she was exposed to somebody with COVID. She's, she believes she already had it. So now she's like in extra solitary confinement for a couple of weeks. I see a painting on your wall, Kaya, that is that yours? Oh, I did this like 20 years ago. I was uh, working on the Hickory Apache Reservation in northern New Mexico and hiked to Opal Lake, Opal Lake with my dog. And um, it was just kind of fun living near where Georgia O'Keeffe lived and painted. Oh, yeah. I, I put that in my water a little bit. And where I lived, I could go down to the grocery store and buy teepee canvas. And so I would buy pieces of teepee canvas and gesso and paint and... A painting is something like that, that keeps me really in the moment. And so a lot of these teepee canvases, not this one, but some others, I mean, I've gessoed and repainted and gessoed and repainted. Like, I don't have attachment to my paintings usually because like who needs more stuff, but I do need the practice of painting just because it helps me stay in the moment. So painting is uh, a gerund to you, not a, not a noun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, art is. Art's about process rather than product. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Today is um, Jackson Pollock's birthday. I and like his work, but I appreciate that he did something <laughs> new. Uh, <laughs> he, uh, he liked being in his paintings, not, not just mm-hmm. in front of them. Right. Interactive. I can see that. Like contact sport. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but that seems like such a boy thing. I, I was thinking about when I used to teach elementary and had to monitor uh, recess. And what I noticed is that boys have to crash into things to know that they're alive. Like they have to <laughs> have to crash into each other and they crash into the ground. Or I watched a bunch of boys make a giant snowball and then like 
leapfrog into it to hit themselves in the nuts one time. Like that was what they needed to do to know that they were alive. <laughs> That's all you need to know about us. I, you know, I'm a new mother and to see the differences of like, I'm in a, like a parent's group. And so one of the women sent a video of her son crawling and he is basically pushing himself, head planting his face into the ground. And I am just in awe of this because Evelyn is very dainty and like she is not going to put her body in harm. And that, that was all that kid wanted to do. And it's just how early that starts. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> we were talking about that, that, that author and I were talking about that today too, about how, how much our environment also becomes part of us. Mm. and how we interact with our environment. That kid has a relationship with his floor that Evelyn does not have <laughs> with her floor. With her environment, it's a, it just takes it in. He, yeah. he forces it in, forces it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When we, um, I'm just remembering the conversation that you and I had, uh, Kea, before uh, when we were talking about you coming on the podcast and you were talking about, and I've thought about it a couple of times since, and that's why I wanted to talk about it a little bit, because I think it's an important topic. The topic of how people have the best of intentions and yet how they can land wrong. And <laughs> I see you uh, wiping your eyebrow because you understand um, how often people try or to do or say or whatever they, and, and just how badly that it can affect another person. Yeah. Intention does not equal impact. And, and I don't just mean that on the receiving end. I mean it on the giving end. I mean, it was really interesting for me to go through the experience of cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment and get so, so angry at people for their missteps. And then last year when my mom was diagnosed to make some of the same missteps, we all want to fix people. But it turns out that's not welcome. <laughs> like that really comes across in the book. I hope so. People, what people's intentions were and then to see how it impacted the main character, one of the main characters. But mm -hmm. I thought if, if, if you're wanting to see what that looks like in action, the book does that. Could you talk about one of those missteps? I have a couple of people I know going through cancer right now, and I'm sure I've made a misstep along the way or two. Yeah. I mean, what became really clear to me when I was, going through my thing is the only right words where I love you and I'm here for you. Those are the only right words. And I had no clue. Like before that, I always thought the more words I had, the more it showed I cared. And everybody, I mean, there were times where I felt like, like I was wearing a white t-shirt and people were showing home movies on my chest. You know, like they were projecting their experience. They wanted to tell me all about their you know, aunt who had cancer and died, like, that's what I want to hear. Shut up. You need to talk to somebody about that. Pay somebody. Don't tell me. Oh my gosh. That's not appropriate. Yeah. Other people wanted to tell me all about alternative healing stuff. Like I was going to gamble with my life. <laughs> you do it. When you get cancer, you do that. Shut up. I don't want, I don't want that advice either. Everybody shut up. I felt like I had a hula hoop around me. And I wanted people to come up right to the edge of the hula hoop in case I needed them. But don't you dare put a toe over that hula hoop because that hula hoop is defines who I am. Don't you dare walk into who I am. Mm. Walk right up to it. 
be right next to me, but don't walk into my, yeah. well, don't walk into my uh, autonomy or my personal authority. Like, no, get out, get out. I got really mad at a lot of people because I'm an educator. <laughs> I was educating. Maybe I am a teacher because I was definitely teaching. Well, it's a strength of yours for sure. I felt like if I'm experiencing this, then, then these people are going to do this to other people who aren't as strong as me and aren't going to tell them. Right. I, I have to, I have to save every cancer patient that person's going to meet for the rest of their lives. <laughs> I gather you didn't understand this boundary before you uh, got cancer. I think because I'm such a strong personality, nobody ever dared to get anywhere close to my hula hoop before. But once I was in a weakened position, they all wanted to rush right on inside my hula hoop. They wanted to say dumb shit to me like, you know, I think this is really going to help you get closer to Jesus. Like, hey, you don't know anything about my relationship with Jesus or God or anything else. You don't get to say that to me, you know, or... Louise Hay, oh, no, 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 no. Turn around and run. Turn and run. <laughs> Jacqueline's favorite. Well, I mean, I think the thing about a lot of these things is that I think a lot of these things are Trojan horses. Right. Where there is a little truth. There is some kernel of truth to it. And then this other lie can kind of hide and sneak in. It's not absolute truth. Yeah. So yes, does stress cause disease? Yes, stress causes disease. It does that mean all diseases caused by stress? Nope. Some diseases are caused by genetics. So shut up, Louise. Hey, turn around and run. Well, I was wondering <laughs> about other people's hula hoops. Did you understand this boundary for other people before you, you experienced it yourself? Mm -mm, no, I was a hula hoop violator. Okay. That's mm -hmm. honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good advice. I mean, I think we're all arrogant, but I, I think I also had a lot of arrogance. You know how we always have pristine clarity about other people's lives, right? Definitely. I definitely was guilty of that. Well, it reminds me of what you said earlier about editing, about throwing, throwing stuff away. About Maybe that's the greatest strength of, a, of an author. Mm. Um, I read a quote today. Sorry, I don't, I don't have any of my own thoughts. So that's why. <laughs> this is new. Do this. I always go back at like how many times in my life since I've had an actual editor that I've wished that she was right there to like put her hand over my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I imagine do. that she's standing right next to me and just goes, whoop. You probably have ab absorbed some of her wisdom. Um, this is, I've never read any books by Colette, but it's her birthday today too. So she was born 1873. So she's been saying this a long time. Sit down and put down everything that comes into your head, and then you're a writer. But an author is one who can judge her own stuff's worth without pity and destroy most of it. Yeah, interesting. That's deep. Isn't that fascinating? So I'll do art for two different reasons. And one of those reasons creates what I call vomit art. Like, you know, when you feel bad and you just want to get it all out, well, that's fine. Like, get it all out, but then get rid of it. <laughs> like, I, I don't get the stomach flu and puke into a plastic bag and then like say, oh, look what I made. It came from a really authentic place. I was really feeling it when I made this. It's 
So the art that I keep is art that that will leave good stuff in its wake, in its wake, you know, that makes the world a better place in some way. That's a good way to look at authenticity. Uh, most of it is not worth keeping. I'm getting ready to throw out all the journals, all the writings, everything, everything that I kept thinking that someday I would use it because I find I don't want to go back and look at it. And I don't think I really want anybody else to look at it either. Mm. And wouldn't it be nice to have the gift of space? Speaking of hoarding. Artists are hoarders in that way. In that way, like Maybe that's why I don't get rid of all my photographs that I take. <laughs> and, uh, storage is cheap right now. It is interesting to actually ask ourselves what is worth keeping. You know, I think I used to look at things and wonder, will I ever use this? Or does this have value? But now I find the question is, is this more valuable than clarity and space? What, what book of yours should I start with, Kea? This one. What's worth keeping? Yeah. Okay, I will. Yeah, you know, in it, there's three characters. There's the main character who's in this moment after breast cancer. And her dad had been a teacher during the school year and a ranger during the summer. So she comes back to Ohanapakosh up at Mount Rainier mm-hmm. to just be with the big trees and find healing in nature. And her husband was a first responder to the Oklahoma City bombing and has kind of been in a calloused state ever since. I had a friend that was the head of the crisis intervention team of the Seattle Police Department. So he was the one that used to talk people off bridges and ledges and help people who were off their meds and causing problems. And he was a deeply compassionate man. He talked a lot about how when he blocked out blocked out the bad, he also blocked out the good. So I wanted to write about that. He also talked about how strange it was to be in sort of combat-like situations in the day sometimes. And then that night, go to a block party and have to act normal. And how our police officers are like soldiers that never get to come home from war. And I thought that was interesting. So I wanted to write a little bit about that. And um, I also, when I was going through my really tough time, I remember hearing about the kids who had been in the Parkland shooting talk about their trauma. I realized, oh, they're, they're talking about exactly what I'm experiencing right now. We're going through the same thing, different things caused it, but we're, we're going through something really similar. So I wanted to show that all trauma is really similar. And then they've got this, uh, this daughter who's graduating from high school and is really going off the rails ever since she learned that there was a genetic piece to this cancer. I thought that that was kind of a, an interesting thing to explore. Like, what do we, do? what will this young, this new generation do now that they've got access to these tests? What choices will an 18 or 20 year old girl make if she finds out she has the same gene mutation I have? Is it ethical to have children when you might pass this on? Is it ethical to have children when you might not live for their whole childhood? Is it ethical to date somebody and not tell them about this if the dating might lead to marriage and children? At what point is it the right time to tell a suitor that these are considerations? I wondered what a 17-year-old, 18-year-old girl would do with that information. So I think it's an interesting book and I hope that it's a book that helps guide people a little bit. Uh, I mean, 
suggest here are some ways that you might find peace. Here's some, some ways that you might be a little bit more in the present, you know, since most of our suffering comes from our own memory or our own imagination about the future, right? While I'm not saying a person should never think about the future, uh, it's nice to maybe dip your foot in and then take it back out and be, be here on solid ground. Not um, providing answers, but some really good questions. Yeah, and, and ideas. I mean, I know that what's right for me isn't right for everybody else. I'm, I don't imagine that there's tons of other women that get a mastectomy and find themselves just thinking, if I could only be with the big trees, I would be okay. <laughs> I mean, that was didn't even make sense to me, but I just really wanted to go back to the big trees in the Quinault rainforest. And at first I couldn't, I didn't have the strength or the endurance to get there, but I went out the mad river, which I thought was appropriate because I was mad. <laughs> I was very mad. And all the wildflowers were in bloom and there were butterflies everywhere. And I found some big trees to hug. It was so nice to be refilled with the energy of life, especially after being in so many artificial environments that year. You know, like there's not a lot of living things going on in the infusion room or in the operating room or in the hospital in general. Before going into the hospital, I would always park in a certain place so that I had to walk on some grass before I went in. I just needed to feel earth under my feet. Those were some deep thoughts to think about for an 18-year-old. Um, you know, I've done the 23andMe, and, and there's some genetic stuff that runs in my family, but something that uh, I think when I was 18, I wasn't thinking about much beyond dating and hormones and other things. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and that didn't certainly didn't exist back in my day, um, you know, genetic testing per se, right. or if it did, you know, I wasn't aware of it at 18. Yeah. She, this character in my book is somebody who's always done the right thing, was the good daughter, was delaying gratification. And now like she doesn't see a whole lot of point in delaying gratification. In the end, I think she finds a balanced state. Her maturing is neat to experience how she... Um, does have this, like you said, kind of calloused, hardened teenager just um, wants to push everyone away. And then she gets these big kind of hits over the head. And to see her grow through that, I, I really enjoyed. I, am I running the book for you, Reed? No, no, no. My memory is so bad. I can't remember spoilers. Okay, good. <laughs> I tell people that too, that my memory is so bad that I'm a great secret keeper. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> My mom said once to me that the mother-daughter relationship is inherently insulting because you have this little girl and you think she's going to want to be like you. You don't think she's going to be like you, but you think she's going to want to be like you. But she doesn't want to be like you. She wants to be like her. She said once she realized that, our relationship improved dramatically. For Carly getting out of that and being with a great aunt who doesn't have that identity thing gives her the space then to look at some of the guests that come to the dude ranch. And yeah, and spoiler alert, I'll always give happy endings because I think that <laughs> I think that the world has enough problems. I was on a, a hike with some friends on New Year's Day and one of my friends uh, was saying that her goal for this year is to not be in a state of inertia. And I was saying that I just want some inner peace. So like she really likes stories and, and words and the talking because that inspires her and that moves her out of inertia. 
And I find myself these days not, not wanting much in terms of entertainment. I picture this pond in my mind or like a, actually Lake Valhalla, it's a small alpine lake. And I imagine myself sitting on this rock, looking at the surface of the water. And sometimes the surface of the water is disturbed if the wind has been blowing, because that's just life. And sometimes the surface of the water is disturbed because other people are throwing rocks into my lake. And sometimes the surface of the lake is disturbed because I'm throwing rocks into my own lake. And once there's disturbance on the surface of the water, I can't just put my hand on the surface of the water and make it be flat. You just have to sit back and wait, wait for the stillness to come, you know? That's a great metaphor, using the lake and the ripples. I think in this book that all three of the characters were unintentionally throwing rocks into each other's lakes and that when they went in different directions, all of them had the opportunity to have still water inside of themselves. <laughs> for Jacqueline's wedding present, I gave her, well, I got to back up. Years ago, I was in Durango and I went into the Methodist thrift store and I'm looking at the books and I see Tantra, the art of conscious loving in the Methodist bookstore for 10 cents. And I was wow. Like, yeah, maybe this old dog can learn some new tricks. So I'm, I was reading the book and realized like, oh no, I'm already doing everything I want to do. But the first three chapters were about relationships. And there was one chapter about how to handle conflict resolution with these tantric principles. The premise was like in most disagreements, there's an emotional person and a rational person. And the rational person wants the emotional person to be rational. And that only pisses off the emotional person worse. And they're, they're energetically in a very different place. And unlike Western society, this book says, stop talking and spoon. Emotional person gets to be little spoon. And if you're so mad that you can't handle that, you can take a 10 minute shower and then spoon and don't talk for the rest of the night. You can talk the next morning, but first you got to synchronize your energies because you can't, you can't resolve any conflict until your energies are synchronized. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. Cause I wondered, you know, how many times are conflicts made worse when there's a fear of abandonment on top of it? There's a concept of the wise mind that seeks to basically, you know, write down the logic side of your brain and write down the emotional side of your brain and then see if both of them can be true and, then, you know, see what feels right to you. Because a lot of times you're torn between, you know, staying in a relationship, for example, or leaving a relationship, right? And there's a logical side that says, oh, the person's perfect for me. And, you know, and there's another side of you that says, oh, this person really doesn't fit for me. I think inertia is a myth. I think sitting by a lake or a pond with ripples that are quieting is very active. I was thinking about this interview I heard with a, a great jazz musician who said he didn't believe in luck. He believed in constant preparedness combined with good timing. So inertia might be that moment where you're prepared, but the window of opportunity hasn't opened up for whatever it is you desire. I think of inertia, for example, there's inertia in, in uh, marriage as an example. Some people, you know, stay together because they're codependent and they, they can't live with each other. There's other people who just stay married because, hey, I was married yesterday. I'm going to be married today. I'll be married tomorrow. I think some of those people are just happy being in those same consistent jobs. Or there's people who've been at the QFC, a supermarket checker, 
I've lived in, in Sammamish for 20 plus years. I probably have had some of the same checkout people for 15, 20 years. You know, I'm so happy about just seeing them as a friendly face, even though I only see them once a week when I do go in. And there's other people who uh, won't go with inertia. They'll just shake things up. They'll just move every couple of years and uh, they'll just leave a job. I have some friends who are like that, who just switch jobs every couple of years, no matter what, even things are going well. They just feel a need to shake it up. I'm thinking about the checker, for instance, and wondering, like, are they in inertia or are they just, I mean, because I think whatever you do with intention, you can do the same thing every day of your life. It's your intention that makes the difference. So if they're checking people out, but they're connecting with other people, they're saying hello, they're aware that for some people that they're the only face, the only, they might be the only person that person talks to today or this week. You know, I wonder if some people do that job with a lot of intention. I don't know. I, I bet there are. I, I really do. I think some people choose that. And I, you know, it's really tough to know other people's perspectives. I've done enough career counseling and going back to uh, projecting. I've definitely projected, you know, bigger jobs onto people. And, you know, it's only recently now that sometimes, you know, the right choice is to, you know, go through the discernment process of staying versus leaving versus taking a different job versus maybe not always taking the stretch job. if It's going to cause you to move or cause you to add different stress to your life. Inertia, I'm sure, kept me doing what I was doing for a long time just without thinking about it because you're just so busy. You don't actually take time to consider is this a choice. You think about lifestyles, an example. So many people get caught up just spending money, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, having mortgages, and people don't realize all the different choices that they do have available to them. They really wanted to stop and uh, take their life in a different direction. But most people are, can just get caught up in it. You know, I certainly could relate to that myself as a, as a workaholic, just being busy, getting to the next meeting, to the next meeting, to the next promotion. Yeah. You know, when I lived in Mexico, the pace was different. And when I drove back up over the border and through LA and just saw all the strip malls and everybody in cars, everybody going between jobs and shopping, I cried in my car. It just seemed so sad and lonely to me. When you were talking, I was, I was found myself wondering about the line between settling and true contentment. Is inertia inertia if you are truly content? Does inertia, is there a relationship between contentment and gratitude and, and inertia and frustration? It's all about perspective. A rock in the desert looks inert to us in our time frame, but it's hurtling through space. It's surrounded by insects and animals and wind and erosion. And it's dynamic as can be if we would only see it. It made me think of those rocks in Death Valley. That That's what I was just thinking about, too. Yeah. Which are amazing. Every time I see pictures of those, I, I haven't been to Death Valley myself. My friend Seep's uh, been there many times and taken pictures of those rocks. And it, it just... Road trip. Yeah, we got to go. That sounds awesome. All right. I was there last oh, year. We need a road trip. And the road to the magic rocks were, was not open. So check your website first. Okay. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Good advice. We're always up for an adventure. So we, we haven't had a road trip. Wild, so I remember this now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm missing it. I'll make sure there's plenty of water if we go to Death Valley. I go. know you will. <laughs> <laughs> Very much a planner in terms of a J on the Myers Briggs is what it is. I, I'm right there with you though. It's like, <laughs> and maybe it's just post cancer, like where I now know that thing you think won't happen will happen. I can't unknow that I live on a fault line. So like just a few weeks ago, I found myself filling up water jugs and just putting them in my closet. 
<laughs> like on one hand, I was like, am I getting weird? <laughs> Maybe, but also if the earthquake comes, I'm going to be living the life. <laughs> not like it's hurting anybody or yeah i have some too so just so you know good <laughs> to be fair i have them but mine are in my garage yeah. to be fair and i i take the uh the gallon jugs and the minute made plastic things and i i think of it this way too you know i'm just saving it out of getting into the down cycle or recycle mm-hmm. bin sort of speak so filling them up and just storing them how can it hurt at worst i'll flush the toilet with it someday or i'll just water my plants with it yeah i had a pipe burst in my in my house and i was really glad i had something to wash my hands with so gotta have a go bag that's what i think <laughs> one time i was being evacuated for a wildfire and it was really interesting to have a few hours i had about six hours to pack and to go through and decide what what can i not replace what if i can only have a car load of my stuff what's worth keeping good title it's great title. Yeah. perfect yeah. it is a great title <laughs> it is i have my list but as jacqueline and reed know i have way too much stuff as you can see just by the books behind me but i know which books i would grab uh, which photo albums i would grab in my high school yearbook so i have a little list of what i would grab do you yeah i do that doesn't surprise me. so yeah so, what, what, what book would you grab? I would gra- grab my James Hollis autograph book. Ah, okay. Finding Meaning in the Second Half of Life. That's that's one of my treasured possessions as far as books go. I have one too, and I'd forgotten I had it. Thanks for reminding me. He was the father I never had, yet uh, his autograph didn't stay with me. Sometimes this obsession our culture has with autographs strikes, strikes me as very weird or signatures you know we're not well now it's selfies yeah that's true i don't have an autograph thing i don't have any many books like most time i go to these authors and i go to a lot of them and i don't ask them to sign the book um but i do want to be there to hear them speak and um i just you know i typically don't you know wait around or if i do wait around it's mainly just to tell them how great their book was i really don't need their signature but He's probably, I don't know if I've gotten, maybe I've gotten one other. One of my friends has written a couple of books. I got him to sign his his book when I gave him away his presents. So I've gotten a couple of those too, where friends have actually written the books and I've had them sign a few and give, so I can give them away to people as gifts. I was thinking about just even on contracts. Yeah. I mean, ever since I sold my last house and bought another one, I was just kind of really fascinated with how writing my name on a piece of paper could mean so much. Can do this huge financial <laughs> transaction. I don't know what the alternative would be. Yeah. I can see where like handwriting, there's something quite lovely about that. You know, when I was a teenager, I had like 30 pen pals all over the world. And that's how I started writing. But it was so much fun to get these letters in the mail and, and to see the different handwriting. And I have to say that now that we're in this email world, I really miss that. It was fun this year. I noticed more people had time to do Christmas cards. It was just fun <laughs> to see these this handwriting. Something about the sweetness, how you can see emotion in handwriting, or see how deliberate a person is, or how some some people are very fast thinkers. And as I think about getting rid of just a, a big box of memorabilia, I I find myself reluctant to let go of my grandmother's handwriting. You know, mm. very sweet handwriting. Or I know that one day I'll really treasure my mom, my mom and dad's handwriting. Like just, I don't know that I have to keep all of it, but a little sample is something about it very beautiful and personal to me. Mm-hmm. I uh, I have my, my dad's uh, down 
vest. I kept a few things after he died 20 years ago. And I wear it when I'm out in the garage or working in, in the winter. And I uh, took it off the other day and I never noticed that there was a tag in it that had his name on it. He was very big into identifying his stuff. He was very stuff oriented. And there was his name uh, on this tag in this vest as if he was planning to accidentally leave it somewhere and then someone would know to get it back to him. It was block uh, printing, all caps, but it was still a signature. I just sent back my friend Maria uh, some letters that she wrote me in college and she showed them to her kid. We went to high school together. She was so excited to get them because I found them in a box in the garage. And I found another letter from one of my other friends talking about her now husband and how excited uh, she was about it. So it was just interesting that uh, I was able to sort of give them back something. And I don't know what I said in the letters I wrote, you know, and knowing me, uh, they probably weren't that exciting. I almost like to see both sides of the correspondence to know what they were responding to and uh, what was going on in my life. Cause I don't think I remember what I would have written them, but I, since other people sent me letters and I know they're responding to mine and I try, I treasure, I treasure those too. And I think I, you know, I did send uh, these gratitude cards out talking about having extra time. That was the one silver lining is I did send out a bunch of gratitude cards to my friends and I was really glad I did as one of my friends actually passed away. It was really good to, you know, do that. Have you guys ever, um, your future self is writing a letter. It's a, it was a, a thing I saw in a book and I did it with a client one time. And every once in a while I, I run across this letter. I think it's my 60 year old self writing to like my best friend and I'm telling her about my life. I just love reading it. Cause it's just so sweet. I mean, I just get such a good feeling reading about what I'm doing in my life 30 years from now. And I just kind of tuck it away. I don't really know where it's at in this house, but every once in a while, like I come across, I see my handwriting and I get to reading it and it seems like it's this other person, but it's me. It's just a, it's a really cool also for I don't know if you're going through something. I mean, it's specifically kind of targeting for counselors to do with their clients, but I thought it was just a really neat thing to do just period. Cause I like writing letters and an exercise in perspective and imagining yourself when you're beyond whatever the set of circumstances are that are troubling you. Yeah, it was. Yeah, totally. Unless, unless it's like dears, you know, I'm knitted sweaters for my 13th cat today. <laughs> I was telling my best friend, Kristen, about my husband and how he's doing. And I think I have two kids in the letter and and one's 13 and one's doing this. And it's just, I really love watching them grow up and it's just kind of neat. I mean, that was before I got married and had a kid and to be able to read this letter. And it's just, I, I can really see that I'm moving towards that actuality. It's great. My books have served that purpose in some capacities. And some of the things that I've written came true after I wrote them. Like somebody did give me a free X racehorse that was red. And somebody, uh, I, and I did meet a fireman, Mike, and <laughs> spend a little time with him. And I did, <laughs> I don't know, oh, and breast cancer. You know, that's why I, from now on, I think I'll just write erotica. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I like that idea. Maybe I should take that <laughs> My out. My grandma always said, that which you give your attention to grows. <laughs> yeah. Hey, hey, Jacqueline, pass that tantra book back. <laughs> yeah. oh, I don't know. Really? 
I like in this in this book, I have a great aunt Ray who lives on a Clydesdale farm. And I hope that one day I will have my farm with my Clydesdales. Budweiser. <laughs> I was I was lucky enough to get to take a trip to England a few years ago and ride Clydesdales around Dartmoor National Park for a few days. And the first one that I rode had been the heavy horse winner of England for the, the past couple years. Wow. And when he went into a canter, he took these four long leaps that I felt like he was going to sprout wings and fly. It was the most amazing thing wow. I'd ever experienced. I mean, I think I've ridden probably about 80 horses in my life, but I had never experienced anything remotely like that. It was amazing. And then other times- Were you bareback or do they make saddles mm -hmm. that big? They do. And Clydesdales are a little bit more narrow than the other draft horses because they were not bred to pull plows. They were bred to carry knights in armor. Wow, yeah. I did not know that. That sounds heavenly. It really was something. And they were so brave. Like the other horses I rode were so afraid of everything. And, and these horses were just like, eh. you know, wild ponies came running up to us. And they were just like, and nice to meet you. <laughs> Cars would come by and they're like, what are you going to do about it? <laughs> I really appreciated that. I one of my last horses was this very nervous horse that um, spooked at everything at white rocks and plastic bags and places where the grass changed color and water and stumps. I mean, they look like bears. <laughs> and um, I had a really bad wreck on her after somebody launched a paraglider above us. And, you know, after I kind of recovered from that, I was dizzy for five months after that one. Um, I was riding her and really pretty anxious and she was pretty anxious. And my friend looked at me from her brave horse and said, this isn't working. One of you has to be brave and it can't be you. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, gosh, you know what? That's actually true for like me and relationships as well. Like, yeah, somebody's got to be brave and it can't be me. <laughs> you, um, you trusted that horse, even though it proved unreliability. I wouldn't say that I trusted her. I would say that I got on her. Why bother with her? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, shortly after I did sell her to a breeding farm where all she had to do is get lucky and have babies. But Okay. Yeah, it took my friend saying, yeah, this isn't going to work. You thought your courage would be enough, maybe. I think that that's a normal uh, woman thing. And I think we see that. I think like in the classroom, we, we, we think if we just, you know, if we just love enough, if we just work enough, this kid will blossom. And then sometimes that happens. And then we make the mistake, maybe in a romantic relationship thinking, oh, if I just love somebody enough, this will all work out. All of these incompatibilities will fall away. And I, I think sometimes you do have to uh, fall on your head and get knocked out a few times either literally on horses or in other areas of your life to learn the limitations of the power of your love. I'm not saying love isn't powerful. I'm glad you listened to your friend. Mm -hmm, me too. I'm glad she was wise enough to state the obvious. <laughs> this has been so great. I'm so glad that you were able to come on tonight and hang out with us in our living room. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, it was awesome. There's so much wisdom um, that I've taken away that I'm sure is going to be helpful for somebody out there who's 
wanting it. If not, that's fine. They, you don't have to take it. <laughs> Isn't it nice when you have a question in your heart and you just happen to stumble upon the, the right thing, you know, whether it's in a book or whether it's just something a stranger says or. Yeah. I always think that's interesting how we choose books, you know, like we have a question in our heart. I think we just know when we pick up that book. Well, speaking of modern life, my, uh, my copy of your book will be here Saturday. Hey. And, uh, but I can start reading it on Kindle right mm -hmm. now. Nice. Oh, excellent. I'll have to get it. I'm still working on the, uh, the second chances. Oh God. Yeah. I was, I was walking in the field the other day and thinking, maybe I'll learn to play the bagpipes. And then I was remembering my character. What was his name? The Phil? Uh, not Phil, but the teacher. Okay. Oh yeah. The t I don't remember the teacher's name, but yeah. Al. He's a scotch drinker though. Yes. And how he said, you know, like when Phil shows up for his bagpipe lessons, he asks straight up, like, is your relationship in the shitter, Phil? Because <laughs> learning the bagpipes is the kiss of death. <laughs> You're going to be banished to the garage. Yes. I was thinking, yeah, now that I've really completely given up on myself, I should learn to play drums and bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, too funny. Uh, well, I hope you enjoy the rest. I think it's a fun book. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you guys for having me tonight. It was really nice to meet you. And Thanks for stopping by. Yeah. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Good night, everybody. And as expected, no talk of band t-shirts. Hopefully we never have to make that sacrifice, right? Speaking of music, what do you think of the new Living Room Therapy theme song? It's called What Is This Life For? by Michael Jones. You should check him out on your favorite music app. He might actually come visit us sometime. It'll be playing in the hallway on your way out. Listen closely. What's this life for anyway? What is all this living for? Is there a heaven, hell, or nothing? Will we learn if there is more? What is this life for anyway? Is there anyone who knows? What is this life for anyway? Is this just the way it goes? What is this life for? What is this life for? What is this life for anyway? Do I get to take this love and bring it with me when I die? If I'm a champion or a failure, did it matter?